Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He's with us Friday, uh, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Appreciate You're sounding that. better and better. Appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. Don't sound so bad yourself. <laughs> you want me to sing? Or something? Uh, not necessary, but uh, the, the, spo- the spoken word. <laughs> no, it's will- essential that I don't. Yeah, the spoken word will suffice for this uh, Friday morning. Uh, well, uh, we know where this conversation starts. I know a lot of people are anxious to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, what happened in Texas last Shabbos uh, was a uh, was obviously a frightening episode. Thank God. Um, um, uh, the uh, members of the congregation were able to escape um, from that harrowing situation. And, and there's a lot that needs to be discussed in the aftermath of that episode. Uh, Malcolm, you have warned Jewish institutions, schools, and synagogues for so many years how everyone has to view their facility and their people as targets. I would guess that what happened on Shabbos just solidified that point of view? Well, from several points of view, actually, um, I think that it, it, it's lessons that we have to derive. Uh, one is the about the case itself, about uh, the person that, that this guy was trying to free, and how they lionize terrorists, somebody responsible for deaths and for, for being involved in potential terrorist plots. Uh, even enjoying the support, supposedly, uh, of groups associated with members of Congress, and the um, questions of how a guy with his background didn't raise any flags coming into the country. Did they not know? Did they uh, not check? Uh, and the uh, too often the language that was used that was uh, expulsed of the um, of the uh, criminal. Um, describing him as a British man, not being willing to identify, uh, because it's part of the motivation, it's part of the story, and not an irrelevant fact in, in this case. And I think the the um, on the positive side, this uh, rabbi and some of his congregants, one who was there, went through the training program, which I've urged people to take from SCAN, or from any other group that is that is offering it in the Jewish community to train them to know how to respond because in the moment you you have to have an instinctive response so it has to be trained and he cited the training from scan as having been very instrumental in that critical moment in directing his uh, his activities the um, need for the ca- uh, cameras which helped the police be able to track the uh, the terrorist and the um, you know the uh, uh, arrangements in the synagogue itself that there was a locked door he was admitted into the synagogue into the temple um, by the rabbi I think so there are lessons that everybody has to derive from it that most of all we cannot take security for granted there are requests now to double the amount of money for the grants there are other requests that are being made. Uh, in terms of uh, the federal agencies and local agencies developing close ties with them, the fact that the police uh, responded and others responded uh, to the to the events that day, and and it was a wonderful demonstration of unity of people of all faiths coming behind the the Jewish community. Uh, but 
the fact is that these are not things that you can develop again on the on the moment. There should be close ties, knowledge of the facility by law enforcement. So if God forbid they have to go in, they know where they're going and what what they should be looking for. So many things that we have talked about and that you can get information on the SCAN website, the SCAN Secure Community Network, I think, .org is the, their um, website. I just would urge people and those who are members of congregations, people who have kids in schools, please don't make security a stepchild. Yeah, it's got to be a priority. Um a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned it, and I think we need to focus on it for a minute. The the I don't want to say obsession, but the media's insistence that he be described as a uh, British national, UK um, uh, citizenship, etc., and completely avoiding any ethnic affiliation, any background that would, you know, again be important to this story. I don't know how we've gotten to this point that you know that that these have proven to be insignificant to the general media. I mean, what do you suggest? I, I know that you know you always encourage people write letters, write emails, get on social media, make the point. But it gets frustrating when it seems that media across the board takes this position and doesn't budge from it. Well, we're seeing that the, the media distortion gets worse and worse, and it's not just online. It's it's uh, live media. It, uh, you saw so many of the representations of this. Uh, the coverage, on the other hand, I think overall was uh, sympathetic. People, um, many in the media, really covered it well and and took it uh, very seriously. But on the other hand, I, I heard an interview late last night, and I, I started just writing down some of the outrageous things in the and it turns out the guy being interviewed was the Edward Said professor at uh, at Columbia and at absolute distortions but the distortions were also on the host on this NPR program and just absolute distortions lies bold lies and yet they get away with it and there isn't the kind of protest that has to be every time people mouth these kind of, of uh, blatantly false a- assertions, which do border on anti-Semitism and cross the line to anti-Semitism often. I'm not saying in that interview, but that certainly was a complete revisionist history and distortion of of uh, the reality about this situation in Sheikh Sharach and how there's ethnic cleansing and ethnic cleansing linked to loss of life. And, I mean, just complete distortion when the, what they want to do is build a, a school for handicapped children that will serve people from East Jerusalem. So the the you know the standards have all been broken, and the uh, need for people to raise their voices and call up stations, write to stations, write to advertisers, write to people to let them know. You see that Unilever has lost twenty six billion dollars in value since the Ben and Jerry's situation wow. came up. I don't think they can ignore it now. It's not necessarily all attributable to that. It could be, you know, that people didn't go out and buy their products for other reasons during that time. But the message is very clear. And we have to have it as a sustained one, that that people know that Jews are not uh, easy targets and that there will be consequences for, uh, for attacks on them. And you alluded to it, but I just have to ask uh, more directly. So the FBI officials, President of the United States, some might say, um, who you know are not ready to identify an attack like this immediately as an anti-Semitic attack. I, mean, I know, again, we have to respond to this in the same way you just described, responding to media distortion. 
Uh, but but how did we get to this point? How could a gunman walk into a an, an obvious Jewish site in an in an area that probably has God knows how many other um, uh, you know institutions of faith that are not Jewish and choose and target this specific one and it's not recognized as an anti-Semitic episode? Well, I think that uh, the FBI people moved quickly to correct it. There was an agent who said it, but I think the FBI itself uh, and they did briefings every day uh, this week with Jewish audiences um, and have said that this is a priority. They certainly were responsive that day. And we know in other cases they work very closely with SCAN. Um, But, you know, it it is uh, unfortunate. It is the political correctness of the day. You don't just uh, be willing to automatically designate things. And yet we know in other regards when there are uh, incidents how quickly people rush to a judgment that sometimes doesn't prove to be true. Now, not every attack involving a Jew or something is, is anti-Semitic. Here, it's clear. Look what the guy had to say. Look at his past history. Look at his, his own brother said he never heard anti-Semitic comments, but he certainly saw radical uh, things, according to some of the reports that have come from uh, from Britain uh, about the guy. So... Um, you know, to to in any way believe the guy chose this place because it was the closest to where he was and where she is being held, according to him, and that um, you know there was nothing haphazard about either the intent or the selection of location. Yeah, um, the uh, th- one of the bigger messages here, by the way, and it's interesting to watch reaction from different parts of the Jewish community. And um, uh, again, we're getting further and further away from the World War II era, so sometimes people forget what I'm about to say. Uh, But one of the lessons we learn again is that Jews are Jews. If not to us, if not every group of Jews wants to recognize other groups of Jews, to the enemy or to those who want to destroy us, we are one and the same. And I think that's a really important lesson to come out of this. I was a bit disturbed with the way people portrayed things in terms of, you know, this this uh, house of worship uh, being different or not being, you know, uh, included in mainstream Judaism or however they put it. And I think we need to realize that when an enemy walks into any institution, school, it could have been any of us, school or shul or, or any type of Jewish uh, site, could be a JCC or anything, uh, they don't care. They don't care about the background. They don't care about how you pray. They don't care what you believe in. The reality is that to them, you're all Jews. And according to this guy, Jews control the world. So he wanted to take matters into his own hands. Yes, and the, the particular rabbi supposedly is, is uh, somebody who is affiliated with J Street, with his own personal views. Uh, if if uh, this if gunman had made some distinction, he didn't, as you said. They see one thing, and that is that it was a Jewish institution, and these were Jews, and the reaction, I think, has overall been very supportive of the people, regardless of the the affiliation, and and I think it's been true when we saw Hasidim attacked, that the community as a whole responded to it, Uh, maybe not early enough, but, but I think increasingly that is the case, that they understand this is it's becoming open season and we can't tolerate it because once one part of the jewish people is under assault all of us are under assault right and uh, you know we, we at that time is not the time to check tits or anything else to know right. that they mean all of us and that whether whatever you think of somebody else it's n- nothing to do with it our enemies see us as one and that we have to respond accordingly to recognize 
they see oh, just one blanket picture. It's like often animals can't distinguish, you know, their eyesight doesn't allow them to distinguish targets, but they see if you move, then they can know, they know to see you, which is why people go on safaris. Um, but the, the here, too, the enemy sees us as just one blur. They're Jews, and they see Israel as part of the same picture, and those who try to disassociate from Israel. That doesn't mean whether they can't be critical of some decision or policy. Right. They, it's one picture. Yeah. Uh, what? By the way, this whole uh, you know mantra, this whole um, uh, 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 description or 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 um, dialogue, I guess I should say monologue in his case of Jews controlling the world. I mean, we always talk about incitement. We always talk about indoctrination. We always talk about this comes from somewhere, and it usually starts young. And I don't know what this guy's background was, you know, as a kid, uh, but I would bet that, you know, he was fed a lot of this as he was uh, growing up and developing his radical views. And then, of course, look who he's trying to free from prison, which makes which made less sense as the story went on, because apparently at the beginning we thought they were actually relatives. And then it turned out that they, you know, have no blood relation. Uh, But this whole indoctrination, which we always talk about, what's going on in textbooks, what's going on in classrooms, what's going on in camps, uh, especially in the Middle East as the enemy continues to prepare its younger people for, for you know, when they're older. This is where it all starts. This is where it all comes from. And if these lies are going to be what, uh, you know, what people base their desire to kill Jews on, then that indoctrination and all of that has to stop. You know, and we, we need to do what we can to stop it. Yes, you know, and it's interesting that yesterday there was a vote in the U.N. with 114 co-sponsors of a resolution, only the second resolution uh, that Israel ever got through the UN, uh, initiated by Israel, and uh, it was adopted by consensus with only one country speaking against it. And I'll give you uh, one guess which country it is that will talk against a resolution that condemns anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, etc. And to Ambassador Don's credit, he, he pushed this resolution, uh, and it was adopted. And of course, it was Iran that uh, said they reject it, and that, and. It, engages in Holocaust denial, et cetera. But I do think that around the world there's a growing recognition of the scourge of anti-Semitism. There are too many governments that either close an eye to it or even contribute to, to it. And with the exception, again, this week there was a study that came out of the textbooks and shows how the UAE uh, has moved, uh, uh, deleted the anti-Israel stuff and anti-Jewish stuff and put in positive and movement towards tolerance. And the same thing true in Egypt and in other countries, in especially impacted by the Abraham Accords, but even beyond Morocco uh, as well. Uh, so it's the one place in the world where you see a positive change in terms of, of anti-Semitism is in some of the Muslim uh, Arab and even Arab countries uh, over the last years. Yeah, interesting. Let's hope that trend continues. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and AlchemSiegel.com, on the AlchemSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. I mean, I keep hearing from people in Israel that, you know, every time they wake up in the morning, more and more people they know are testing positive. Is You know, we, we thought this was going to start going away. Uh, I, I mean, the, the numbers just keep going up, and it's funny that now the skies are open. I are there any regulations at all? Can anyone now with a negative PCR test get to Israel? Well, you have to file some paperwork, and and those who are planning to go, make sure you fill it accurately because a lot of people are getting rejected because they didn't do it, and they come to the airport and find out they can't go. But uh, the restrictions are are increasingly being lifted now. We're told that the green pass 
in Israel is also uh, subject to being lifted uh, very soon. Uh, the, um, the about two million Israelis have had it, uh, and the estimate is that by the end of the month, which is just a few more days, uh, it will peak, and then you will start seeing it decrease, as as in South Africa, here in New York. Also, the numbers have been have started to decrease. Whether it's herd immunity or not, we don't know. I certainly don't know, but it, it still has some time to run before it will be in a in the safe zone. Uh, but people, there's a lot of pent up demand. People want to go. They want to see their children, grandchildren. They want to in Israel. They want to visit. They have all sorts of um, reasons uh, for going. We haven't seen the surge in tourism that was expected uh, and some anticipated, including me. Uh, yeah. But I think it's just postponed. I think it's people will are, are waiting to see what happens, and then you'll get a big rush once the numbers start lift, uh, going down significantly, and any restrictions are are lifted. And my concern is that that people make plans for Pesach may now not decide not to go to Israel. Uh, I think it's a mistake. I, I'm sure by Pesach things will be better. I mean, nobody can predict the course of this <laughs> yeah. this, this crazy disease that some new variant uh, pops up. But tourism is very important. Our presence in Israel is very important. I, I know people have uh, a desire to go, uh, but are very concerned. We've seen it in our own uh, engagements. Yeah, it is difficult, I'll tell you. Yeah, there's. I think the attitude has become after two years that people are just not willing to go through all the mac of anything. By the way, it could be going out to dinner, it could be going to Broadway, it could be you know trying to get together for you know uh, with friends it, it, until it actually becomes a reality, and you're like you're hours away from seeing that it's going to happen. Then people are ready to act, and I think with the Israel thing, I think people are just you know not ready to to de- you know to plan something two, three, four weeks in advance. And then, you know, have in their mind, this could change, this regulation could change, this quarantine, you know, um, standard can change. Uh, and I think that just is very frustrating for people. So I get it that uh, the surge in tourism is something that's greatly desired. Uh, but I'm with you. I think it's going to take a while. Um, and Pesach, I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be a, uh, a rush for people to go to Israel. Is there any news on the Netanyahu deal? Because it seems like the only way this is going to happen, according to the Attorney General's staff, is if he actually uh, if he actually agrees to completely stay out of government. I guess this would mean for the rest of his life. So is there any hope that this deal might actually still happen? I think yes, still. It, but every day decreases the possibility because the Attorney General's term is coming to an end very soon. And if this has to go to a new attorney general, um, we don't know that they will be willing to to join in it. I thought the addition of um, Aaron Barak, the former chief justice, and uh, somebody not only could the uh, person uh, endorsing it and getting involved would have expedited it. But it's very complicated, and there's the question of the charge of moral turpitude, which does require then that I think uh, seven years you have to stay out of politics, or they can ban you from politics forever. Uh, the questions of what does he have to admit guilt to. And, you know, this is, I think, a very difficult decision for Netanyahu. There are those who, you know, urge him to fight it through, but I think he he sees what what evidence or what they have. Uh, Go through this day after day endlessly, and this will drag on for a long time. Uh, It's not a very pleasant prospect. So I think he has to weigh all of the factors 
and uh, hopefully they can expedite it and get this off the agenda because it, it just sucks up so much of the energy and so much of the attention, uh, and it's it, it doesn't it's not productive in any way at this point. There was an analysis, an opinion piece that said that um, since and I don't get this. If you could explain it to me, great. Uh, that Netanyahu is the glue that holds this coalition together. And therefore, if he makes a deal like this and ends up leaving government, it's going to put the current Israeli government on shaky ground. Now, this was said, and and this was believed or taken seriously enough that the prime minister apparently alluded to it, without you know stating it directly, alluded to it in a public statement that the, the situation is fine, stable, we're going to continue, government is working, etc., etc. Can you explain this, why Netanyahu's presence in the government today could be a factor in its viability tomorrow? Because a lot of the people who are there are there because anybody but BB and that they could not join with the Likud under Bibi's leadership and might come back. I mean, Ayala Chaked, Gidon Saar broke from them. You see the, the criticism from current members and the divisions that exist. So the, the feeling was that the government was able to come together mostly because it wasn't Bibi. And um, you know that, that if you look at the numbers, projections for Bennett's party, he doesn't cross the threshold. If elections were held today, meaning he would get four seats or five seats, maybe that again is subject to a lot of changes and a lot of uh, uh, discussion. But the so the fact of what keeps them together, such a diverse group of people, is one that they know if they go to elections, some of them will not be back in government, and two that it, that they can rally and the glue that keeps them together is against Netanyahu. The same thing is true in Likud. We could see a breakup of Likud uh, if Netanyahu, who is the is certainly the strong leader there, if he was removed from the scene, you have already declared candidates from Barkat and Yuli Edelstein and Saar and many others, uh, Katz. Um, there isn't one that is a strong figure, as strong a figure as Netanyahu to consolidate everybody. Uh, the polls show that Smutrich, right, right-wing right party, would be the big beneficiary right now. But again, that doesn't mean that will be true if they go to polls and, you know, to actually vote. That's, uh, Israelis always uh, deceive in that regard. Right. You know, they tell the truth to the pollsters and lie at the polls. So they have a uh, uh, long hi- history, so people shouldn't jump to every to conclusion right now. But it is true that Netanyahu's presence is the overwhelming, and the Kud is still the largest party by the, in in the the polls that are done. But uh, if he was removed from the scene, you see a major shift, and it depends then who would emerge. But it's likely that there will be a bloodbath within Likud, uh, and then. Uh, if somebody can emerge, you might have splintering into various parties. It must be. It must weigh on him this decision so much more so if he, in fact, is aware, and I have to assume he is aware, uh, that he has this prominent a role, this prominent a quiet role, the current Israeli government. Which something That's, I didn't... Uh, it's not a quiet one, and he, he is very much aware of uh, of his unique position. But, you know, he's over 70. I think he, you know, he's looking to the future and what his family will go through, what will happen if they go, mm-hmm. has to go to trial and everything comes out. And, frankly, I, I think he cares about the country. And, you know, when you look at what's going on with Iran, just the decision on East Med, the, the, the so many things in this one week, the attacks in Yemen, 
um, Haftar from Libya landing in in, in Israel, uh, Indonesia delegation coming to Israel to talk about COVID, not yet ready for elections, but uh, the discussions between uh, Bennett and Putin, uh, so many things, and yet the dominant issue, headlines issues, often relate to the to the trial. Wow. Whole thing is unbelievable. By the way, you just alluded to the uh, to what happened in Yemen. I mean, so, I mean, actually, to put it differently, what happened in the UAE because of the Yemen Houthis. So, can you? I, I know that <laughs> it could be frustrating that someone like me does not know the tutorial on this. But there, there is a war in Yemen going on. So, so these, which groups and why are against the UAE? Okay, so the. Uh, there is a group called the Houthis who have challenged uh, the government uh, and the UAE and Saudi Arabia back the government forces. They, uh, UAE withdrew from Yemen in 2019 and has a small counterterrorism uh, unit there uh, involved in anti-Houthi operations. Um, until now, the Houthis have been targeting Saudi Arabia uh, often we believe it's actually Iran that's doing it, and especially that attack, if you remember, uh, on the airport, uh, the coordinated attack by uh, missiles that flew around the Gulf and hit them. Now we're seeing the increased use of drones, even ballistic missiles in the hands of the Houthis, uh, and perhaps uh, and other um, missiles that they have been using. Um, so they've opened another front now uh, on the UAE, which has been supporting the forces, and there were, they've had some successes on the field, meaning that they, the government-backed forces have um, the non-Houthi government-backed forces have actually made territorial gains, and the um, UAE uh, withdrew their support to some degree. But it's, uh, it, it, it tells us what the real intent, and none of this could take place without Iran's direct involvement and backing of the, of the Houthis. It's a way for them to tie down the Saudis, they, even though they're meeting, they met this week um, this, a delegation from Iran went to Saudi Arabia, and the UAE met also with the Iranians, in part probably to dampen down the threat uh, from the Houthis. But they, they now have missiles that can go 930 miles, which means that they can hit uh, targets in UAE, but it also means they can hit targets in Israel. Right. And the you know they set a fire a fuel depot and an international airport. Uh, many other missiles were taken down by the defense uh, systems that um, that are there. Then Israel offered its assistance to the to the Houthis because they're fighting a, a common enemy. Um, but we know that Iran sent 136 drones last year. I, I've talked about the growing threat of the drones uh, and the use of them by Iran and more and more sophisticated uh, uh, drones. Um, the UA forces have back have largely not been involved in directly in the offenses against offensive actions, I should say, against the the Houthis. But um, uh, lately, the, those forces that they backed have been uh, challenging the Houthis more in various uh, governments in very key areas. Just so I understand, Israel did lend support to the Houthis. You said they offered not to. UAE. Oh, to UAE, okay. Against the Houthis. I thought you said And said that, you know, this is a reminder of the common enemy that the countries all face, which is essentially Iran. And the scary part, I mean, the scary part, there's a lot of scary parts, but uh, what's what's really frightening in this year 2022 is these sophisticated weapons 
and weaponry that these groups have. I mean, you point it out now almost on a weekly basis, but uh, you know, to the average person, it looks like something that's insurmountable. I'm assuming Israeli intelligence is on, on top of this and has the capability of taking out even these uh, you know, guided drones and other things that could do, do tremendous damage. Well, there are a couple of things uh, that you reference what you've said. Uh, for one, the United States uh, uh, delisted the Houthis as an international terrorist organization in the last year. Delisted. Delisted. So now everybody's demanding that they be relisted. Oh, I think, it, I, think, subject I think that came search. up in the Biden press conference, I think. I don't remember. There was a, there, well, there, that, that they had been pressing them to right. relist and questioning why they were delisted. Yeah. There is no rationale for, for delisting them. They are a terrorist organization. Um, uh, when you, and when you talk about Israel's capabilities, uh, they do have a good intelligence, and they have... Um, you remember an Israeli ship, the Mercer Street, was attacked by right. these drones also yep. in a very critical... Uh, and I reported it here, but I understand that people didn't see the significance uh, of it, but it was really a, a watershed event when they could use these kamikaze um, the drones to, to attack a ship uh, far away from Israel, and and it was part of the escalation of their capacity in this regard. But Israel this week tested the Arrow 3 anti-ballistic missile system. It's done together with the U.S., with the um, missile defense uh, uh, um, organizations of both countries were there, and this interceptor um, is able maybe even to hit satellites in orbit. So it's a huge development. Now Israel has three stages. You have Iron Dome for the lower level. You have um, David Sling for longer distance, and now the Arrow missile. Uh, and the problem is that it's very expensive to fire them, and you know you, you have a thousand dollar missile coming in from uh, Gaza, and you have to fire a hundred thousand dollar counter missile or two actually to 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 take it down. So hopefully there there are other development new means to counter this threat at a much more reasonable cost uh, that god willing and by the within the year will be operational were you as confused as many others were by the president of the united states statements regarding the ukraine and vladimir putin and on top of that the question he was asked about the uh, iran deal where I, I i i guess the short answer that he provided was that there will be a deal but i thought that wasn't really obvious yet that there would be a a final deal replicating uh, what was going on before 2015 well, it isn't clear yet that there is a deal. The Iranians have been very resistant, and they are playing their cards. They feel that the other, you know, United States and the Europeans are being very weak on this. Um, you know, will uh, agree. And the warnings have come out this week from Israel, from some of the Arab countries, about the release of funds, taking the sanctions down. That will, again, put billions of dollars at the disposal of Iran to use to support their terrorist activities. It's not going to go to help the 50 percent of Iran that's under a drought and people don't have water, it's not going to help, you know, provide medicine for the people who have been very sick there with with COVID or any of the other real purposes of a, of a government. It's going to be used for offensive purposes. They've demonstrated in the past they're going to do it now. Look what they're doing while they're under the restrictions. And China has been a lifeline for them because they're buying their oil and exporting it in the United States and others have sort of closed the blind eye and the hope that this would somehow move Iran, but we're seeing it move in the wrong direction. And, you know, the question of the, of the internal splits within the Iranian 
uh, power sources between the Supreme Leader's House and the IRGC, between Russian influence and Chinese influence and others uh, active there and playing uh, roles within the, the government, that the... Um, uh, this is a time when you really have to be tough, that the Iran economy is in total collapse. They need this money to survive. They know it, but they they feel uh, less pressure somewhat because of the increased oil income and the price of oil shot up. Um, but it's nowhere near what they what they need. So if, if they see th- that the parties they're negotiating with are weak, then they'll just take more advantage of it and delay it as it has been going on. And then they, the, the, the important message also is that even if they would agree, let's say, to, to, to export the uranium enriched above 20% or above three, even 3.6%, which is what the deal is, they have the knowledge now. They've proved it. They have the uh, advanced centrifuges. So they can reactivate this instantly. And put all of that back to work. So even if they would agree, it's, it is not in any way dim, diminishing the knowledge that they've gained, the expertise they've gained, the technology they gained when they launched that missile and everybody said, oh, a failure, a failure. No, it wasn't because of its main purpose was put a, a satellite into orbit. Its main purpose is to develop their ballistic missile capacity, which they're not allowed to do under U.N. sanctions, yeah. but do it under the guise that it's part of their space program. Uh, and what do you think of the president's analysis regarding the Ukraine? Look, I think Ukraine is a very serious issue, and, and um, you know, President Putin is uh, very clever, very shrewd. He, he manipulates the uh, situation. He enforces the, these negotiations with the um, the Europeans at a time when we canceled the, the East Med. Uh, the United States announced that they were no longer supporting the East Med uh, pipeline, and they said it's because it's not. Uh, economically viable, and so far there has been no funding raised for it, but also because it's, uh, you know, the carbon neutral drive, and this would be for fossil fuels, and therefore they oppose it, whatever. It was handled in the wrong way because of the way it came out, um, you know, left the countries there scrambling, and we had calls with the um, with people from Greece, Cyprus, and Israel who were, all, who were directly affected, and it seems that they were surprised by it. If we cut out these, now, of course, Iran, Turkey steps in and said, well, we have an alternative pipeline, but the Russians have the main pipeline. So we're supporting their pipelines into Europe and denying alternatives. Uh, maybe it, it can be worked out in other ways. It should have been worked out, but, but this is, uh, I mean, we're just building the dependency uh, on Russia right. and strengthening his position. Well, unbelievable what's going on. you got to thank God that the world is still standing, frankly. Um, we'll, we'll save the end, Frank, story for next week. I know people wanted me to ask you about it. We'll save it for next week. Thank you so much, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week, please, God. Have a great Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Friday morning, 740 Eastern Time, for the weekly update right here at JM in the AM.